You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hello, faithful listeners, and welcome back to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn Milkins, an early career psychologist, and today I'll be sharing the microphone with Monique. We'll be talking about when you don't fit the mold as a mental health professional. So when you are autistic or have ADHD or any other kind of neurodiversity and you feel like "Mm, you're not quite fitting in with the others. So Monique, I'm so grateful to have you on for a guest and I'm sure the listeners are really interested to hear who you are. Hi, so my name's Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist from Brisbane, Australia. I work in private practice and I've just come out of the early years phase of my career and moving into the mid phase of my career. I first discovered that I was likely on the autism spectrum a few years ago when I attended a face-to-face training with Tony Atwood on women and adults on the autism spectrum. And I was interested because at the time I had suspicions that my partner was on the spectrum and was interested in learning more. But little did I know that when he started talking about uh, all of the different traits uh, that I guess women and girls on the spectrum exhibit from childhood, it just started ringing all these bells for me. And I I thought, oh, you know, this is exactly like it's, it's mapping out exactly what my childhood has been like, my experiences at school and high school. And yeah, it just made so much sense. However, I was a little bit dismissive of it at the time. I thought, no, surely not. You know, I can't be autistic. I can't be on the spectrum. No, no, no. And so a few years passed and a couple of years ago, I got really interested in the topic again. Uh, It became my new special interest. Yeah. Uh, So I started researching absolutely obsessively everything about autism and ADHD, in particular in adults and women. And a lot of new research uh, and resources, books and things were coming out at the time Mm. that were more affirming and having more information about that population. And I ended up getting my official autism diagnosis last year. Uh, I'm not officially diagnosed with ADHD, but I've just had a close family member get their diagnosis. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm an ADHD. Wow. So what does it mean to you to get like your official diagnosis? Like, is that a big occasion for you? Or is that just like, I knew it and it's just confirmation of it? Um, look, the evidence was mounting up to the point where I could not really ignore it. Mm. And I think I was quite nervous and I just really needed that external confirmation um, of like, was I on the right track? Even though I was 99% sure that I was. Um, And it just helped me understand so much more about myself, about how I think differently, um, how I socialize differently, uh, my sensory needs. And it helped me actually accept myself on a deeper level than I ever have. Uh, it helped me let go of some perfectionism, uh, and really start to understand how I've built 
a life for myself that really suits me um, and how I can take that even further. That's very affirming. That sounds really nice. I'm really happy for you that you were able to, I guess it was able to give you that that permission to, I guess it sounds like release some of that perfectionism, but also accept yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It actually released a lot of uh, self-criticism that I had about why I had had issues with friendships um, or why there were miscommunications that yeah. seemed to happen, why I seemed to think and feel differently, um, communicate differently to others. So it was so helpful. That's so great. Yeah, I'm pleased. And we're so grateful to have you on today because I guess the reason why we're interested, well, I'm interested in bringing this on the podcast as well is because I have a diagnosis of ADHD. I've had that since I was about, I think, 14. And what happened is that I could not hand in assignments on time. I was missing everything. I couldn't finish exams on time. And I was also accidentally skipping classes because I couldn't um, get my timetable correct. I was also very impulsive, um, which is normal like for a teenager, but I think like the combination of that with everything else, like I was also very good academically. So it was really incongruent. It wasn't like I was trying to be rebellious teen phase and, and not go to classes and stuff. It's like, I really wanted to, but I would just get um, stuck on like the first thing. And I'd be like, Oh, I think I have my class here. And then I wouldn't adjust and update my thinking. So for me, like this kind of perseveration and thinking, like I don't change my thinking. I'm also like, I noticed later on that like perspective taking is a difficulty for me. Um, and mostly like the impulsivity and not listening to people as well. So I, got on medication. I didn't learn anything about my executive functioning or compensatory strategies. Nothing was talked to me about it whatsoever. Um, And that was something that I had to learn in like my mid to late 20s. Um, So I'm really interested in neurodiversity, being a mental health professional. And we've worked out that this is like a key difference between me and Monique already is that I've experienced lots of rejection experiences in the field. Um, Whereas Monique, and she'll talk about in a sec, like she's had lots of people who are neurodiversity affirming and also neurodiverse themselves, which has helped with that. So my hope is that by talking about this, that it will speak to early career mental health professionals who um, have ADHD or are autistic and also speak to kind of feelings maybe of professional isolation even and better understanding each other in this profession. Sound good to you, Monique? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe share with us, um, Monique, like what have been your experiences with being neurodiverse and your contacts perhaps with other people who are also neurodiverse? Well, I think I've been quite lucky actually because you know, I didn't actually realize that I was neurodiverse until last year, um, like officially getting diagnosed, but I had a suspicion. Uh, but somehow I found myself drawn to other people who are neurodiverse. And there is a bit of a theory around this called the double empathy theory. Um, that is absolutely fascinating to know about, uh, where, Basically, they've done a study where an autistic person communicating with another autistic person can read their facial expressions, read the social cues, communicate really easily. A neurotypical person with a neurotypical person, again, easy communication, read all the cues. A autistic person reading a neurotypical person, there's difficulties. But this double empathy theory found that 
social communication difficulties go the other way. So a neurotypical person actually had difficulty reading an autistic person's facial expressions and social cues. So the, yeah, the double empathy theory posits that, yeah, you're going to find communication intrinsically more easy and effortless, flowing, intuitive when you are communicating with people of your own neurotype. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't actually know that. And that like pretty much explains my whole life because I've had friends who like have queried ADHD and I've always been like, if you're friends with me, you probably have ADHD. Cause like, I've just noticed that a lot of my friends have it and I'm just like, no, we just tend to flock together. Absolutely. You know, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, When I look back at my history, the friendships that I've had that have actually lasted without a lot of effort have always been with other people who are neurodiverse, whether they had official diagnoses or not. Um, And I found that. So going into my master's program, uh, it's a smaller program. So it was, you know, easier socially for me. But the people that I was attracted to in the program were also neurodiverse. So I got a uh, good friendship out of that. Um, the other friends that I have are all psychologists that are neurodiverse. Wow. So it combines my special interest of psychology with the ease of talking to other people who have my neurotype and it's the perfect friendship. Yeah. And then when I graduated from my master's and was looking uh, at work, I was lucky enough to go to a private practice where my boss, who's a neuropsychologist, is very open about having ADHD. Uh, She's very affirming about autism and ADHD and the clinic actually specializes in that area. Um, And yeah, it, it kind of was easy to fit in there. And at the time I wasn't interested in the area. I had other interests within psychology, but when I was doing my clinical psychology registrar program, where you have supervision after you graduate your master's and it's two years, uh, minimum of supervision, I was lucky enough to have the other boss of the practice be my supervisor. And she's also neurodiverse. Oh, that's so, so lucky. <laughs> yeah. So our brains just inherently clicked. There yeah. was no negative experience or experience of rejection because there is that inherent match. Um, and again, this is without me realizing that I was autistic at all. Um So yeah, my advice to people would be, uh, if you find your tribe, you find the other neurodiverse people in your family, your friendship circles, your community, your work, you're going to thrive. Uh, everything is, you know, a lot easier in terms of communication and social rules. And I think, finding a supervisor and having a mentor who's neurodiverse is really important and is who is affirming. Um, Like when I got my official diagnosis, I went back and told my boss uh, and her first words were congratulations. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's so nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was wonderful. Diagnosis Um, party. Yeah. And not, not everyone's going to have that positive experience, which really sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I think that's really helpful. And I think networking and finding other neurodiverse mental health professionals is really important. So whether that's on social media, there are support groups, um, whether it's finding people in your local area, super important. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And yeah, it's so interesting hearing you speak to your experiences because yeah, mine have been the precise opposite. So it's like, I haven't had uh, neurodiverse supervisors or mentors. Um, when I did my master's, there was one other person with ADHD in the class and like we got along, we got along well. Um, but other than that, in terms of mentors or supervisors, like I've had to mask my mannerisms. I've been rejected because people have said like your mannerisms are an issue. So I've gotten that feedback quite directly. Um, whenever I say that a weakness is my impulsivity, but I know that so well that I'm not going, I always try and think before I act. Um, I've had like mentors treat me like a, a ticking ethical time bomb sort of thing. Um, so I guess like all my weaknesses like have been directly, I guess, called out and quite rejecting experiences for me. And I think that's because I thought that I could be okay if I didn't prioritize finding my tribe. But even just hearing you talk, I'm like, Oh yeah, I should really prioritize that more because I think it, like you said, it would be so much easier with communication, just understanding that I wouldn't have to necessarily explain myself so much or hide parts of me, which is so uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think if you look at the social model of disability, uh, that basically states that, you know, if you have a disability, is it actually that you're at fault and there's something wrong with you? Mm. Or is it actually that the environment and society doesn't support you? And so, you know, most of my clients are neurodiverse. Um, I just live in this beautiful little neurodivergent <laughs> bubble. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I say to them all the time, you know, if you are in the right environment, you will thrive. If you're in the wrong environment, you won't. So I think the environment matters. Yeah. And I think like we could all reflect like on our experiences and see where that holds true. Like I know even for me, like in the workplace, I know that if somebody is um, micromanaging and, and watching me too intensely, I perform way worse. Um, if I'm given a lot of autonomy, and this is why I thrived as a PhD student, then I do way better. So like applying that to ADHD, it's like if somebody can accept that maybe that I'm going to have lots of ideas and maybe flip between different subjects. It works so much better for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that probably brings me to my next tip, um, which would be about your environment and really knowing yourself. So for example, myself, when I was doing placements in my master's, um, you would do placements in different organizations and different areas. And I just knew for myself I wanted to have a work environment where exactly what you said, there's autonomy, but there's also support, there's flexibility. So I know for myself, if I was seeing and doing the same thing every day, I would quickly become understimulated or bored. So I need a job with a lot of variety, but also uh, knowing my strengths and weaknesses, I want to work in a job that is focused on my special interest and what I'm passionate about. I need to work in a job that's meaningful to me and matches my values. I like can't work where that's not happening. Um, and also working in an environment where my executive functioning is supported. So working in private practice, um, 
all of the the boring bits, um, you know, boring to me, uh, like billing and making phone calls and booking people in and advertising and things like that. I delegate that. Um, and I get to focus on the bits that are really interesting to me and give me a lot of dopamine, which is working with my clients and working in that one-on-one space with people in the area that I enjoy. And how do you think that helps you overall? Um, I think it helps so much in terms of quality of life and well-being and in terms of preventing burnout to be in the right environment that really meets all of your neurodiverse brain's needs. If I was uh, working maybe for a government organization, having to work in a team where there's a lot of office politics, I just knew I (laughs) I would not last. Like I can't do office politics. I would just be super blunt and (laughs) probably piss off a lot of people um, if the right thing's not being done. It's Um, literally the reason why. Well, one of the main motivators for me going into private practice was just hating the politics. I'm just like, nah, I just, Mm -hmm. I don't like this. I can't deal with you. And um, because like um, for me as well, sometimes I've noticed over the years that I attract people who are insecure and then they start bullying me. So I've been like the subject of bullying as well um, from perhaps people who see that I'm excited and outgoing and enthusiastic and they get a little bit insecure themselves. Um, and so I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't deal with this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And why should you have to? Um, you know, the right job is out there. It's just finding it. And and again, I think really getting a diagnosis can matter because it helps you really understand what your needs are. Um, like I was lucky in that I kind of had an intrinsic uh, knowledge of what my needs were, even though I didn't have a label on that um, at the time. But yeah, like if I was working in that sort of organization, um, not being able to do a lot of clinical work and just doing the more like boring stuff, um, office politics, I would be miserable. Um, and I, I don't know if I'd want to, you know, be in that profession anymore. Yeah, no, I found understanding the, my executive strengths and weaknesses massively helpful. Even when I first got diagnosed, I did cognitive assessment as well. And that identified that I've got really fast processing speed, but quite weak relative working memory. And I've got like sensory needs where I like uh, doing things with my hands. Even now, as I'm recording this podcast, I'm like, don't tap things, like don't use your hands. But when I write with clients, like I'm writing continuously, one, because my memory is actually, isn't actually that great, but two, it helps stimulate me. So like I'm continuously drawing and writing Um, and being able to accept that and understand that that's just what I need to do. And other psychologists, they might be like, no, I don't take notes during the whole session. That's great. That's great for you. But for me, like it it really works. It makes my work really enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, some psychologists or mental health workers who are ADHDers, they might find ways of moving about the room in session. And if you have, if you're working with neurodivergent clients, it gives you that permission um, to kind of, I guess, have a session in a way that's going to meet both people's sensory needs. Um, And the, the sensory environment is really important. So again, like I'm very fussy in particular, um, like princess in the pea. Um, (laughs) So like at my private practice, I have my own room. Um, So I've got autonomy and control over like what I do in that room. Most of the time I don't have the overhead fluorescent lighting on. I have natural lighting coming in from the window. 
Um, I have my box of fidget toys that like I invite my clients or myself to use again, like most of my clients are neurodiverse. And I, I do wonder if that double empathy theory is responsible for that. Uh, cause I didn't seek it out just gradually over time staying in the same place. I was like, Oh, the clients that are, um, you know, engaging with me are not neurotypical. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. That's really interesting. You know, interesting. I'm, I'm noticing the same thing, actually. Like a lot of what you're mm. saying is just resonating with me, like very deeply. I'm like, oh yes, yeah, this is it. Yeah. I would look through my list for that day and every day and go, there's not a neurotypical to yeah. be seen here. Like <laughs> yeah, what's totally. going on? Yeah. Like is the suburb that this practice is in just full of autistics and ADHD? <laughs> like, is there a concentration in Brisbane of yeah. everyone just lives in this suburb? But no. <laughs> okay. It'd be, it'd be pretty yeah. interesting if that was the case, but I, yeah, I guess, mm. I guess not. Maybe they're attracted to you. Maybe. And, yeah. you know, again, if you both know there's that neurodiversity there, um, like I've got clients that will come in and go, can I take my shoes off? Can I sit cross-legged on the couch? Can I lie on the floor during this session? Can I doodle? Can I use, you know, this fidget toy? Can you turn the lights off for me? You know, can I wear sunglasses in this session? And it's okay, you know, because we're both aware of the sensory environment. Um, whereas again, if I was working in a workplace that I didn't have my own office. I didn't have a window. I had to have the fluorescent lights on all day. It was in an open plan office, which would be the worst in terms of noise pollution and distraction. Um, yeah, again, it's, it's just a working condition that would take a toll on me and probably lead to burnout. Yeah, I, I completely hear that as well. Um, it's so important to have your workplace, I guess. And the way that I interpret that as well is for me, like a real takeaway from this episode is um, not being ashamed of every part of you. So like with my clients, I never want them to have to hold back a part of themselves. I think because like quite deeply, I know what that's like as well, but I want them to embrace themselves who they are fully. And maybe that ties with that social model of disability that you are saying, like, I want to make sure the environment works for them. Um, and so, yeah, not being ashamed of who you are and bringing your whole self um, to the profession and allowing the clients to bring them whole souls as well. Like it's really key for me. And it, it also makes me really happy, but makes my clients happy as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, being your authentic self uh, is, is really important um, working in mental health. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess that kind of maybe coming to that thread of burnout and like knowing yourself and um, can you, can you tell us a bit, like, it sounds like, you know, a little bit more, probably lots more. Um, who am I kidding? You probably know lots more than me about like this burnout idea because you've researched it a lot. Whereas I haven't in like, I have no idea what it's like in autistic and neurodiverse folks. Um, can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so burnout is where you experience an extended period of stress beyond the time period, what your nervous system is designed to be able to accommodate and to an intensity over that extended time beyond what your nervous system is able to accommodate without a break. So your body can't come back down and regulate itself. And over time being in that extended state of fight or flight or stress, uh, it can lead to some pretty bad physical and mental health consequences. And something that's really important to know that I didn't know um, until learning about neurodiversity is that people who are neurodiverse are more prone to burnout. So if you think about being an ADHD or being autistic, your nervous system is 
likely to be more sensitive than others to the environment. If you have sensory issues, you're going to be constantly stressed and overloaded by those if they haven't been recognized or accommodated. Um, and often like from school through to adulthood, uh, a lot of neurodivergent kids and adults are in constant states of burnout, uh, which can lead to meltdowns and shutdowns. And a common pattern that I actually see with my clients and at our clinic is we're getting a lot of women coming in in their late 20s, um, their 30s, where they may have been undiagnosed neurodivergent and then they've taken on running their own business or a lot of extra projects. Maybe they've decided to have children and all of a sudden their compensatory strategies that they had no longer are enough and they actually collapse and reach mm-hmm. a state of burnout. Um, and that's normally when they come into the clinic and we kind of go through the process of working through, okay, what do we need to do to recover? So in mental health uh, work, we know that it is one of the professions that is more prone to burnout because of the nature of the work. So if you're a neurodivergent mental health professional, you're going to be even more prone to burnout. Um, and I, I've already experienced burnout, unfortunately. Um, I got burned out in my second year of my master's. And I think it was from uh, all the multitasking that I had to do and juggling multiple demands. So doing full-time study, being in a relationship, working part-time as well. And my master's program was at a regional university, which had its perks, but I was driving two or three hours uh, one oh, way, wow. <laughs> each oh, way to get there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> to go to university on top oh. of everything else. And it it was too much. Yeah, yeah it was too much. Um, and it actually took me a year to recover a whole from year. that burnout. A whole year. Yeah. And my physical health uh, suffered. So I actually got uh, an autoimmune disease and then a second one um, and hasn't been the same since. So oh, I'm really sorry um, to hear that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been a lesson. It meant that I had to really let go of some perfectionism and set better boundaries. And it really taught me that, uh, you know, I have to be careful with what I take on, um, which is a good lesson to learn. Um, so going into work now, um, the past few years, I, I like private practice because it gives me that flexibility. So I don't work full time. I work four days a week. I make sure I schedule lots of breaks and rest, um, in my private practice schedule between clients. Um, but also like in my general lifestyle. And I really work hard to take care of myself because of that. It makes complete sense. Of course you would. So it sounds like the burnout for you was almost like a real wake up call. Yeah. In a way it actually was a positive, um, even though it was really difficult at the time because it really helped me to understand burnout and understand what I can and can't take on. And I might not be able to do as much as other people, um, because my nervous system, you know, is set up differently and I need more rest and recovery, perhaps than other people. Yeah. And just even hearing you say that, that like I might be able to do less than other people or my nervous system is different. Like you say that kind of with a voice of acceptance. Is that right? Like you're like, that's okay. Yeah, it is. That's okay. Um, And if other people have something 
different to tell me about that that's their problem yeah cool I like that yeah because <laughs> it's like <laughs> I wonder if like other neurodivergent folks have this as well but I also have like perfectionism and I guess one of the things with not accepting myself is that I'd see other psychs be like oh I see six or seven clients a day and I work six days a week or something like that and I'd be holding myself to their standard and then from that I'd be concluding I'm weak so I need to have a break, you know, I've scheduled it in for this year that I have a break every six weeks um, because last year I did burnout and I've also reconsidered my breaks and giving myself more breaks. But then I'm like, oh, I'm weak. I'm not doing as much. I'm not working as hard as other psychs when I know bloody hell, like I'm working hard, um, but it's been really hard with that comparison. Um, I don't know. How did you, how did you come to accept that that's just the way, like, that's just what you need? Um, I think it was being so ill that I, you know, when I got sick with my autoimmune disease, um, like I physically couldn't, you know, do anything extra except the bare minimum for a while um, until I got better. And so not wanting to go back to that and also having to be okay with that and also getting it well while you're still young. Like I burned out when I was, I think, 23 or 24. So everyone else is going out and, you know, after working or studying, going for drinks or partying or going clubbing. And I'm, I'm just like, uh, sitting in my bed, drinking tea, and, <laughs> you know, oh, this is just too much. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I think that's and, a fair you call. Know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think learning about self-compassion was really mm. helpful for me. So I read a book, uh, by a lady called Kristen Neff and yes. she is a psychologist in America that talks a lot about self-compassion. And that was a big turning point for me, like learning to incorporate self-compassion and being motivated to improve my health and not get burned out. And then when I learned that I was neurodivergent, really understanding, oh, okay, that's why I burned out. Um, and, and having that understanding of, wow, it is okay to rest. My nervous system is different. So just having the added, I think, diagnosis and knowledge really helped me accept myself on that even deeper level. I think I'm slowly learning that self-compassion. I have, um, I've listened to a podcast with Christian um, Neff on it actually about self-compassion. She's brilliant, um, but I haven't read the book yet. I'm kind of sticking my head in the sand. I'm like dipping my toes into the self-compassion waters. Um, <laughs> yeah, it can be hard to give up that perfectionism. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I think with perfectionism too, if you're neurodivergent, you probably are more likely to have that perfectionism because of feeling a need to overcompensate and to mask. So all of my life, um, like if I've done something, it's been at a hundred percent, sometimes because of masking, sometimes also because I'm very passionate or very interested in something and I want to go at it a hundred percent, but I've had to learn to take breaks and rest and slowly I've started to unmask. Um, whereas I think during my masters, um, there was a lot of masking going on. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I think like that passion is a, is a big source of burnout actually. And I wonder if you've noticed this as well, but I've noticed amongst like folks who are neurodivergent, we're very keen on justice, I think. And like, I've got a big, like keen sense of justice and advocacy and like a lot of my early years I spent thousands of hours volunteering like with advocacy and stuff like that and like if something is wrong 
that I'm really like upset about it. And I've had to kind of be like, which mountain do I want to die on? Um, you know, what am I, which battles am I going to fight sort of thing? Um, but I just wondered, like, have you noticed that justice is a big thing, even amongst yourself or your clients? Yeah, definitely a big theme. Like I, I think while I was doing my master's, I would sit in the lecture, but then also be organizing a protest march on my <laughs> laptop at the same time. <laughs> um, and yeah, recently I've actually been doing a change.org petition about, you. yeah, thank you. People with an ADHD diagnosis as an adult and how they can't access the same medications on the PBS that someone with a childhood diagnosis can access. And the catalyst for me was actually my brother and my husband getting their ADHD diagnosis, both adults and going, well, you know what? Like, why can't they get it on the PBS when someone else that was diagnosed as a kid can? That's so unfair. So, yeah. It is. And the price gap is so ridiculous because I've got my stimulant medication and because I was diagnosed before 18, I get it for about like, I think it's about 30 bucks for me. But then I look at the price, like the non-one and it's like 124 bucks. And I'm just like, that's nuts. And a lot of people with ADHD have uh, experienced a lot of struggles with education and employment and often can't afford uh, the high price of these medications that are designed to help them, um, you know, do what they want to do in the community and achieve some of those things. And the injustice of it actually blew my mind. And I have spent thousands of hours on this petition um, and, which has taken off actually, we're getting some real change on it, which is awesome. Um, and if you, if you want to check out the petition, it's on my website as is a burnout resource as well that I created for autistic burnout. Oh, I'd love to link to it in the show notes as well. So you have to yeah, pass me along amazing. the links. I will. But yes, I basically promised my brother that I wouldn't stop until he got his medication on the PBS. (laughs) Like no matter what, if it takes me five or 10 years, like I won't stop. And that's that like single-minded, obsessive focus, which I do think also got me through all of the psychology training. Like can someone who, who is an autistic get through this training? (laughs) Mm, I don't know. Like, unless it's just special interests and it's all you think about and want to do and you're obsessed with it. Are you going to be able to jump through all these hoops? I don't know. I think it really helped me. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, like it sounds like it didn't for me, like, cause I did my PhD and my ADHD was like a massive, uh, like barrier to completing it, but also my single mindedness and like my doggedness, um, like is what really got me through. So it took eight years to finish my PhD, but I got there and I was like, I'm not dropping out, I'm not giving up. Amazing. Yeah. I think it really is that single-mindedness. You can achieve so much, but the key is not getting burnt out along the way. I think that's, that's where we'll kind of leave it up. I think that's a good time to wrap it up. Yeah. I think we covered some really good points. Yeah, me too. Thank you so Mm. much, Monique. Like, is there any final thing that you wanted to leave the listeners with? So I just want to say that being an ADHD, being autistic, being neurodivergent, means that you can be a really great mental health professional and even be an excellent one. It's not a barrier as long as you're in the right environment, working with the right people, focusing on what's right to you. Um, and don't let anyone tell you different. Mm. What she said is my takeaway. I think that's a brilliant way to end the episode. I'm so glad to have spoken with you, Monique. And thank you so much. It was really insightful for me, like just as somebody who 
who hasn't had much contact with other ADHDers and um, autistic folks and neurodivergent folks like in who are mental health professionals. So it's been really lovely to to, to meet and hear from you. And I'm sure the listeners really appreciate it. Um, and I'll definitely link to those resources in the show notes. So listeners, be sure to check it out. Thanks so much again, Monique. Take care, everybody. And we'll catch you next time on Mental Work. If you enjoyed today's episode talking about neurodivergence, then you might enjoy Monique's podcast called The Neurodivergent Woman. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from, including Spotify and iTunes. Highly recommend giving it a listen. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating or review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.